Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to The Business Brew. I am your host, Bill Brewster. This episode features Ben Jenkins. Ben is President and Chief Investment Officer at Digital Bridge. Ben is also the co-founder of Digital Bridge Holdings and the former chairman of Global Tower Partners. Prior to forming Digital Bridge Holdings, Ben was a senior managing director and head of the Hong Kong office for the Blackstone Group. You may have heard of him. In short, Ben is the real deal. The reason that I am particularly excited to bring this interview to you is not only is Ben the real deal professionally, he is a heck of a guy. I did some background on him and the comments that came back were that he is a really, really good mentor and a really good person. And I am really happy to have Ben on the program. And I hope that I did him justice as an interviewer. I hope that you enjoy this. Towards the back half, we get more into Digital Bridge, and I think the beginning half of the interview is more career advice-ish, and this is a conversation that I greatly enjoyed having, and I hope that you enjoy listening to. This episode is brought to you by Delupa. Delupa is founded by a former hedge fund analyst to bring simplicity into the investment process. Delupa offers an AI-driven single source for all company-reported data and allows for investment teams to make the most informed decisions in the shortest amount of time. Delupa scales the velocity of an investment team's idea generation. Analysts spend less time locating and manually inputting meaningful disclosures into Excel and more time synthesizing in the minutes after the print. Delupa captures data from all company-reported sources, including from footnotes, MD&As, and investor presentations. Delupa's data sheets include gap to non-gap adjustments, guidance, and all company-specific KPIs. Each data point is auditable to the source for easy verification and accuracy. Delupa's Excel plugin can also update your existing models for the latest quarter in just a single click. Bulge bracket banks and major multi-managers are trusting Delupa for initiation in coverage, building and maintaining industry dashboards, and keeping their models up to date. Visit the link in the show notes to create your free account and learn more about how Delupa can help increase your teams to differentiated insight. I use Delupa as a perk of the program. I very much appreciate the access to it. I think it is more of an institutional product than something that the prosumer or retail person may use. Give them a holler, see what they have to say. As I said last week, I'm in the lead gen business. They're in the sales business. If you could give them an inbound and tell them that I sent you, if it sounds like a product that suits you, that would be great. All righty. As for disclaimers, nothing in this show is investment advice. All of the information contained in this program is for entertainment purposes only and educational. By the way, also educational. Please consult your financial advisor before making investment decisions. Do your own due diligence. Enjoy the show. Thank you to Ben. See you next week. Ladies and gentlemen, I am thrilled to be joined by Ben Jenkins of Digital Bridge today. Ben, how are you? Fine, thank you. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you very much for making the time, man. I appreciate it. You're a busy guy, and I, I hope to make this this worth your time. Well, it's my pleasure, and I'm sure it will be. So do you want to give people a little bit of background on the current role that you serve, and then maybe we can talk a little bit about how you got there? Sure. So I am the president and chief investment officer of Digital Bridge. We are a $75 billion asset alternative investment manager focused on the digital infrastructure space. So for us, that means the 
physical layer of infrastructure that enables mobile and internet communication. So think data centers, fiber networks, wireless towers, small cells, uh, potentially subsea cables, satellite infrastructure, uh, digital outdoor media, and the like. And my role is to run our investment process. So from sourcing to analysis, execution, uh, risk management, portfolio construction. I also uh, am involved directly in a number of deals and with our investment teams, as well as spending a lot of time with our limited partners and other investors. It's uh, it's quite a role you have, and I look forward to digging into it. I, I was just listening this morning. I found a podcast that Mark gave with CBRE, I believe it was. And it was it was a really cool little he did a good job like uh, Mark's the CEO for those that don't know. He did a good job like um, I guess articulating how bits get from your phone mm-hmm. to where they need to get and all the way back. And you guys uh, build the backbone of all of it. Exactly. So if we could maybe start with your early career and, you know, somebody listening to this may be thinking, well, how in the world do I do I replicate a career like that and get into Ben's seat? So do you mind talking a little bit about what you did, you know, out of college and sure how you got sure. here? It was, in retrospect, a fairly traditional path. But at the time, I promise you, I had very little idea what I was doing. Uh, or where it might take me. And I think, you know, as we get into perhaps some of the advice uh, elements, I think it's great to have an idea of what you'd like to do and, and where you'd like to go. But there's a lot in life that is serendipitous. And I think trying to engineer every step of the way is probably unrealistic and, and not very productive anyway. But in my case, I was fortunate enough to attend Stanford University, and I majored in economics, which they're very proud of saying, we, we give you an education, we don't teach you a career, which is all well and good, except most people need a career after <laughs> yeah. it. And so um, I was incredibly fortunate to get a job at Morgan Stanley as ah. a financial analyst. And it's not an exaggeration to say I barely knew the difference between a stock and a bond, but they took a chance on me and had a fantastic training program and really gave us a lot of practical skills to apply in the analysis and work that we did. Uh, I was in the M&A department, which was fantastic. And I got to see a lot of different industries, companies, and really develop my analytical and particularly financial modeling skills. And based on that, I was at least able to interview for jobs in private equity. And so so let's let's back up real quick, because there were some stories that came out the early years of, of Ben Jenkins, the analyst as, as an M&A spreadsheet junkie, for lack of a better term. W- what were your hours like? Oh, uh, they were long. And if you talk <laughs> to uh, any of my colleagues who we just had a 30th uh, reunion 
I guess I'm dating myself. Oh, neat. That's fun. But it was fantastic. Yeah, that's cool. All credit to to Morgan Stanley for doing it. Uh, Grant Gregory, who was in our class, is still there as a senior managing director, and and he helped sponsor it. And we probably had 20, maybe 25 out of a domestic analyst class of 75 or 80. So it was a very good turnout. Huh. But if you talk to them, none of them would describe me as a spreadsheet jockey. Okay. I was at best a, a spreadsheet mule, but <laughs> I found a way through it. And part of it was with long hours. Uh, you know, there's just no way around that. And it packs an enormous amount of learning into a short period of time. And so, yeah, I mean, th- there were countless nights at two, three in the morning, but I was never alone. There was always a group of people there and we were helping each other and supporting one another. And overall, it was an incredible experience. And and many of those people are still good friends today. Yeah. I sat, I I was at uh, BMO Harris and I sat Mm -hmm. on a, on a floor with the investment banker um, analysts and it was, you know, I mean, they were, they were always there late, but they were, um, you could tell it was like a real team and the, uh, you know, some of the junior, I, I guess, I don't know exactly what they were. They weren't MDs. They were below that, but they were above analysts. So I guess associates or whatever, you know, it was, it was nice to see them all interact. And I, I think, yeah. uh, it's a, it's a tough, tough grind. It appears to be from the outside, but it does appear to have a lot of team feel to it. Right. It's kind of like getting hazed Indeed. together, I think. Indeed. <laughs> so, so, okay. So when you were there. Uh, I don't want to jump too far in the conversation, but one of the things we're going to talk about is mentorship. And I'm curious uh, what you learned from your time at Morgan Stanley. Like, were there people that you picked up how you wanted to treat younger people when you developed? Yeah, that's a great question. And, you know, I've been very fortunate in my life to have a lot of great mentors, starting with my parents and grandparents and then coaches and teachers and professors, but my first real professional mentors were at Morgan Stanley. And in particular, Gordon Dean and Mark Bradley, who were the heads of the San Francisco office where I started after college. And they were just terrific people and outstanding professionals and really took an interest in, in me and the other analysts personally. And obviously there were professional obligations that we all had, but it, it was a genuine, sincere interest. And um, I'm particularly grateful for that. And eventually when, when I had the opportunity, tried to do the same thing, I hope even half as well uh, as they did. The, uh, the San Fran office, now when you joined that, was that, um kind of poo-pooed because it wasn't the New York office? Like, was that a less sexy office Uh, to go to? Maybe a little bit. And it was truly uh, San Francisco in those days. There was no Sand Hill Road, Silicon Valley. And I worked with Gordon and Mark in what they uh, sort of called the industrial group, which was basically everything that didn't have another group. So we were calling on Boise Cascade, Levi's, 
Clorox, huh. you name it, sort of the the litany of West Coast based companies. And yeah. it was a it was just a fantastic experience. It was a little bit maybe out of the loop with sort of the the more critical mass in New York, but uh, you know, working with Gordon and Mark more than made up for that aspect of it. Well, that's kind of why I ask. Sometimes, um, sometimes, sometimes what is perceived to not be what somebody may desire or want can lead to actually a very good outcome, right? So I was Absolutely. just kind of curious. Absolutely, and you know, again, we'll we'll talk more about it. But I think every opportunity in life can be a chance to learn and grow if you. Uh, approach it that way. And, you know, in my case, I didn't know any better. So it was easy. But uh, that turned out to be a very formative experience for me. Hmm. So how long were you there before you you decided? All right, about gonna... a year. Okay. Uh, I spent about a year there. And then I went to New York for my second year. Okay. And and was that at Morgan Stanley? Or it was. Did... Okay. It was. All yeah. right. That makes sense. And then, and then, how long were you in New York uh, at Morgan Stanley before you decided that private equity may be where you wanted to go? Yeah, so it was kind of the the middle of my second year. You know, it's a two year investment banking analyst program, and honestly, I, I hadn't thought about what I was going to do next. Um, and then I sort of noticed my colleagues all interviewing either for hedge funds or private equity. And I tried some hedge fund interviews and I clearly didn't have the chops. Um, hmm. You know, it wasn't really a passion. There, there are people who are passionate about stock picking and, and clearly I wasn't. And then maybe from an analytical standpoint either, I, I wasn't really prepared for it. So private equity was appealing because the parts of investment banking that I really liked were working with the companies and and especially management. And I felt like with um, a private equity experience, you would get closer to the companies and have more interaction with management. And so that was uh, particularly appealing to me. And I interviewed with uh, a number of firms and was fortunate enough to get an offer from Saunders, Carp and McGrew, which had been started by a couple of guys, Tom Saunders and Alan Karp, who had left Morgan Stanley a few years earlier. And that was really my entree to private equity. Hmm. So what were you what were you focused on at that firm? Was it like uh, middle market type yes. LBOs? It was middle market. I think we would have uh, used the phrase maybe not growth equity yet. I think that was still uh, a few years away, but middle market private equity. And it had a particular consumer focus. We did a lot of restaurants and retail investing. Okay. Well, you had what? You had like Levi's and Clorox you had mentioned, right? But but again, I didn't really know much about it. Uh, And, and, you know, sort of coming back to to mentors again, I, I had some great mentors there, Tom, uh, Alan, John McGrew, but then the vice presidents and and principals at the time, uh, John Clark and Baron Fletcher were incredibly patient with me and really taught me the private equity business. And I'm eternally 
grateful for that. And we had a lot of fun. They were, you know, very uh, high growth, exciting companies like Dollar Tree stores. Oh, yeah. Um, which, you know, went on to be a multi, multi billion dollar enterprise. And it, it was just a, a fantastic experience. Those retail, uh, you know, when you see the cash on cash returns of the boxes, that's that's a heck of a concept. Exactly. And that's that's exactly what we did. Break it down to its unit economics. And, um, you know, from Dollar Tree to Hibbit Sporting Goods to uh, Marie Callender's restaurants, um, hmm. you know, all of them had very compelling unit economics. How do you treat expansion in that? that you know, I mean, I, I look at kind of where they, they say, say the TAM is. I mean, do you just kind of grow until the economics start to break down and you say, OK, well, there's the TAM? <laughs> yeah, that's a great question. And, and we spent a lot of time on that because... Um, a number of the companies we invested in were perceived to be regional uh, concepts. And the question was always, how far would it translate? Yeah. You know, that was the case, certainly with uh, Hibbit Sporting Goods, which had started in small towns in Alabama, but eventually grew to over half the country. There's a uh, fast forward uh retail fashion concept called Charlotte Russe that was a Southern California uh, sort of tween brand. And the question was, you know, would it work in Arizona? And then would it work in Texas? And the answer was yes. Um, and I think the, the challenge is there is an arc to those businesses and you do need to be thinking about the exit before you get too close to that uh, asymptote or plateau because you need to leave something for the next buyer. Yeah. And, you know, when we were doing the IPO of, of Hibbit Sporting Goods, we spent weeks identifying and categorizing potential expansion markets. And we looked at, you know, demographic data, competitive information, and we sort of qualified an additional 500 sites that that they could expand into and that became an important part of the ipo story interesting as somebody who dabbles mostly in public markets i always wonder that there's no more buyer after me and i am on the end of the life cycle yeah well and you know they they eventually um have to demonstrate that they can continue to grow and in, in retail the comp store sales the organic growth uh, becomes very important as the concept matures. Yeah, it's amazing. I mean, Burlington Coat Factory and Five Below, and I mean, there's like a number of these that are they're yeah. just really incredible to see. And I, you know, I never would have thought like Burlington Coat Factory when I walk into it. I never would have thought right. it would have had the economics it does, but it's pretty impressive. Yep, interesting. Okay, so you you were there for how long before? Uh, first of all, when Another, when you. Yeah. When you're now in private equity, do you realize that you're in uh, like a really growing, I don't know the right way to frame it, but like that's the place to be in finance, right? I understand the question. And uh, certainly I think we all felt very fortunate to, to be in the industry. But at least in my case, I was far too young and maybe naive or, or just inexperienced 
to see what was really happening because my perception at the time, in fact, someone said this to me when I started at Saunders Carp, said, you know, Ben, all the easy deals in private equity have already been done. Huh. And <laughs> this business is getting tougher and tougher. And he was right in the micro sense that returns were harder to generate. There was more competition. Markets were becoming more efficient. But what I missed, and I think a, a lot of people did, was sort of the tidal wave of capital that was coming into the asset class. And that drove enormous growth for two decades. It's still growing. And yeah. while individual deal level and ultimately fund level returns have compressed, the enterprise value that's been created at the firm level is extraordinary. And that's because the industry overall is offering an attractive risk reward proposition to the underlying investor. And that's um, what's driving the inflows of capital. And now, um, you know, expanding into more high net worth, insurance, and eventually retail capital. Do you feel as though the the aggregate ecosystem in finance is um, as healthy as it's ever been? I mean, I, I don't have a good way to contextualize sort of the growth of private markets and what it may have done to public markets mm -hmm. or mm -hmm. I mean, like, are we just in a more sophisticated time now that is sort of like a better place to be or is it just an evolution that shifts? Yeah, I, I would uh probably stop short of uh, characterizing it editorially uh, as better or um, more efficient. I, I think it's certainly more evolved, more differentiated. And I think that's a natural progression. I think you've seen that over time, not just in finance, but in many sectors. So I think this is um, a logical progression. And I think it ultimately comes back to the proposition that the industry is offering its customers, the investors. Are we able to generate a superior risk-adjusted return relative to their alternatives? And of course, there's uh, portfolio considerations, different uh, allocations, but uh, fundamentally, we have to continue to deliver. And, and if we do, I think the allocations will grow and, and the capital will continue to flow into private markets. When you say a risk adjusted return, you know, like a, a skeptic would say, well, if, if are you talking about um, like beta, uh, right? Because private private valuations can sort of set their own marks, right? So are you talking about it that way? Or are you talking about like fundamentally from approaching a deal and investment to exit, it's a better risk-adjusted return than, than what is out there elsewhere? Well, I would actually characterize that as alpha in the investment management parlance. Yeah. I think certainly the best alternative asset managers are generating superior return to whatever the, the relevant 
benchmark may be. And I think there are a number of reasons for that. Uh, certainly leverage is one of them, and, and that needs to be considered. But fundamentally, value is being created through faster growth and higher efficiency. Certainly that's our model at Digital Bridge. And I think, you know, again, with the evolution of markets and the competition, the old sort of buy low, sell high model doesn't work anymore. So you have to genuinely drive value after you make an investment. And the best firms continue to do that. And they continue to be rewarded with greater allocations and more capital. So so this, I think that provides a good way to, to go back to where we were um, in the conversation about, you know, one of the ways that you can can build value, it seems to me, is by building teams. And I, I'm kind of curious, you know, your experience, how you developed your competence at building up the people around you mm-hmm. in order to to uh, to accomplish a goal. One one of the things I did a little bit of background on you um, before, you know, the interview. And, w- and one thing that came back was what a unique boss you were and what a good mentor you were. And it's uh, a point of the conversation that I want to make sure that we don't lose. So I'm curious your thoughts on that. Sure. Well, first of all, thank you. That That's very kind. And I appreciate uh anyone who's said that, I would say, first of all, this is fundamentally a human capital business. The financial capital is obviously the instrument that we use to drive our return and and our business, but it's really the people that make it happen. And, you know, we haven't, as an industry, always appreciated that and, you know, uh, not had maybe the best human capital management systems over the years. I think we've had one fundamental thing, which is sort of, to me, the overarching driver of all this, and that's alignment. You know, if you go back to the GPLP relationship, there's almost perfect alignment there. Uh, We only get paid when the results are realized for the investor. Similarly, we extend that to our management teams and and the relationship between them and and the shareholders. And then within the private equity firm or the alternative asset management firm itself, the sharing of that carried interest is fundamental to the business model. So I I think we did an excellent job with that and, and therefore were able to succeed perhaps in spite of our shortcomings as managers. And it's sort of been the case over time that people advance in this industry based on their investment acumen or sort of commercial ability rather than managerial competence. And I think that's probably still the case, but there's much more appreciation for developing people, developing teams, building world-class organizations that can sustain results over time. And certainly that's what we try to do here. I think, you know, it starts with identifying uh, and attracting top talent. This is a very competitive business and, and we need the best people in order to deliver superior results. So we've 
expanded our recruiting efforts. I think we also have now implemented a much better development process from feedback to creating experiences or opportunities for people to grow within the firm. And then finally, paying and and rewarding people for uh, delivering on that sort of managerial uh, human capital element. That's been uh, a very successful formula for us. Well, it seems to have been a very successful formula for you personally also. And and I, I guess what is is very interesting to me about what comes back about you is, you know, I mean, you, you spent a lot of your career at Blackstone. I don't perceive that to be a low stress environment. And you maintained uh, kindness, humility and a sense of, you know, wanting to mentor people. So so do you, yeah. is that something that you feel is ingrained in you? Is it like, where does that come from? And and, and how can you be successful being that kind of person? I think sometimes sure. it's, the perception is it's got to be more cutthroat than that. Yeah, well, I just I, I, I don't think you can be successful without being true to yourself, at least not over any meaningful period of time, because it's just not sustainable. And, you know, in my case, I was very fortunate, uh, again, to have great mentors as I was coming along. And in some sense, it's sort of paying that forward. In other sense, there's a sort of self-interest where treating people well uh, gets better results in the short to medium term as well. And, you know, frankly, it's something that I enjoyed. And we had an opportunity at Blackstone to work with some of the truly best and brightest in the world. And that was uh, a real privilege. These were just incredible people, bright, funny, motivated. And so it was just uh, a pleasure being around them. And so, you know, whatever I may have done as a mentor or a colleague was um, truly my pleasure. Um, and, you know, the, the Blackstone diaspora today is remarkably successful. Many of them still at Blackstone, and I'm certainly grateful for that as a shareholder, but many of them uh, have gone on to great success in other firms. And I think it's a testament to the caliber of people that we were able to attract and the quality of experience that they got while they were there. In a slightly different question, how have you seen a successful way to motivate CEOs that are, are working for po portfolio companies? Because Presumably, they're already fairly wealthy and, you know, uh, fairly successful. Right. So how do you um, yeah, how do you how do you find that person that just wants to go to work because they love going to work? Well, look, um, I, I do think uh, the financial alignment is important. And in some cases, the, the CEOs are um, already wealthy, but not always. And I think, you know, e even wealthy people want to feel like their contributions are being recognized and valued and sort of having in place a system that and a program that does that, I think is fundamental. But beyond that, it's really engaging 
their sort of personal and, and professional pride and, and drive. And, and these are typically highly motivated, highly ambitious people. And they really want to know that you're a partner in supporting that growth and that dream that they have. And so, you know, there are a number of ways to demonstrate that. But the, the best way I know is being really engaged and talking with them regularly, helping think through different strategic issues. That doesn't mean micromanaging uh, the business. We don't uh, get involved in the day-to-day operating details, but we try to be a resource and to provide guidance, resources. You know, we have um, a large operating team here at Digital Bridge that we can bring to bear on a particular company's behalf. And then, you know, finally, just uh, supporting financially what they're trying to do with the business, whether that's equity or debt capital or perhaps um, identifying an M&A target and, and helping with the execution of that. And, and through that process, they see that, that you're truly a partner in the journey and, and want to see the business, the company, the executive succeed. And based on that, we've had fantastic experience with our management teams. It's something that I've, I've wondered about because at least as it, as it pertains to Digital Bridge, uh, it, it appears to me that a lot of the people that you have hired to run your business units have uh, big resumes. And I would think supporting those people and also building a culture where they're not maybe, I mean, there's healthy competition and then there's sort of like ego that that yeah. you want to stay out of the building, right? Um, I don't know. It's it's just kind of interesting as I've thought about what you're building over there. It's uh, Yeah. I, I think, you know, we've been able to attract, as you say, some real luminaries in our space. And I think for many of them, it's exciting to feel that they're on the cutting edge with a platform and a team that are highly motivated to see them succeed and will be sort of in the mix on the most relevant, most interesting transactions, opportunities, and have the, the capital and resources to play in the game that, that they want to be a part of. And you know, we're, we're incredibly fortunate uh, to have the caliber of, of management teams we do. So you were at Blackstone and it appears to me <clears throat> your life was, uh, was pretty set if you wanted to stay there. What made you make the jump to go into something more entrepreneurial? Look, I think there's a life cycle uh, to an arc in a private equity or for that matter, many other careers where after having been at a larger firm, you have a desire to maybe start your own or, or do something a little more entrepreneurial. And, you know, I've been at Blackstone 12, almost 13 years and been incredibly fortunate to work on so many interesting things and be part of the growth of, of what is truly a world-class firm and organization. But I did have a desire to, to do something a little more entrepreneurial. And I had known Mark at that point for close to 20 years. 
And we had a very successful run together when he was a portfolio company CEO for an investment Blackstone had made. And he was in the process of selling the company again. And at that point, there was an opportunity for us to team up. And, you know, we talked about it many times and had many sort of brainstorming sessions. And it culminated on a napkin, uh, a breakfast napkin. As all good ideas do. They do. And at that point, you know, it, it just felt like the right time and, and the right thing. And, um, you know, fortunately, it, it's worked out pretty well. That's cool. So what got you into, like, why was Mark one of your portfolio company CEOs yeah. at the time? So this is a good story, actually. In its early days, Blackstone in private equity had focused on what they called corporate partnerships. And this was fundamentally to differentiate it from some of the other LBO firms, as the industry was known then, who were at times hostile to management and companies. Mm. And that really came from Pete Peterson and Steve Schwarzman's background as advisors to uh, Fortune 500 CEOs in their prior capacity at Lehman Brothers. And they had brought that ethos to Blackstone. And so it was a logical way to position the firm. So when we were looking at a new sector, in this case, uh, cell towers, as they were known then, um, we would often try to find a management team, a corporate partner to work with, both to get more knowledgeable and, and gain insight on the business, but also potentially to bring synergies in a transaction. And so I first met Mark as we were looking at other tower deals. And, you know, we looked at Motorola had a portfolio of towers to support their SMR radio business. We looked at uh, towers in the old Sprint hmm. company. Then there was a, a tower company that was struggling financially called Pinnacle Towers that we looked at together. And for one reason or another, none of those ever came to fruition. And finally, one day I just said, Mark, why don't we buy your company? And it was relatively small at the time. And we made uh, a couple of hundred million dollar investment, bought a majority of what was known as Global Tower Partners, a very ambitious name considering I think it had about 500 towers and, and was nowhere near global. But uh, we grew it fivefold over the next three years and wow. had a very successful exit to uh, Macquarie as they were coming into the business in the U.S. At that point, uh, I went to Hong Kong to open our office there. But uh, Mark and I stayed in touch and he continued to grow GTP, as it was known, and eventually six years later, sold it to American Tower for almost $5 billion. And at that point, we had uh, stayed in touch and we started talking in earnest about what might be next. Me uh, after Hong Kong, he after GTP, and we came up with the vision for Digital Bridge. How was Hong Kong? Amazing. That's my wife's been. She said it's like her favorite city. Yeah, I, I was there for five years 
And uh, looking back on it again at the time, uh, we didn't realize it, of course, but that was probably peak Hong Kong. Huh. And uh, an amazing uh, professional and personal experience uh, for me and, and our family. We made some incredible friends, had some unbelievable experience, uh, learned uh, a tremendous amount. And I'm uh, extremely grateful for, for having that experience. Have you had to move around a lot in your career or just a few times? Not a lot, uh, just a few times. And, and we are uh, indeed a dual career family. So that has been aided mightily by my wife being flexible uh, and, and us establishing a base in New York that's allowed both of us to pursue our careers. Is it hard to live in her shadow or are you okay with it? <laughs> I'm used to it. It's great. <laughs> yeah. She was on Ted Seide's show, if I, if I recall correctly. She's a frequent uh, guest. We were all classmates at business school. For some reason, Ted has never asked me to be on his podcast. Mm. So, well, maybe, maybe, uh, I don't know. Maybe he's uh, holding out or something. But um, it's clearly it's neat. He, he's got better. He's got better talent uh, <laughs> to draw on, which is which is great. Uh, more power. To well, him. you can take solace. You're you're a top three hundred guest, maybe. So well, when he gets enough. down there. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. I hope he makes it to 300. I'm sure he will, man. That's a, he's got a good thing going. Um, that's that's a that's a fun little tangent. Um, yep. It's it's very it's uh it's it's hard to be married to somebody that's better than you. But I get I get along okay in it. Um, you know, I feel like it brings me up. So I just hope yeah, I don't drag her down definitely. too much. <laughs> well, exactly. That's that's my primary concern every day. Well, I th I think you're probably doing okay. Um, how, I mean, how is it as a family to have two big jobs like that? I mean, do you like, what do you need to sort of put to the side in order to make the family side work? Well, I, I hope that we're not sacrificing anything. And I hope that, you know, we can be an example in particular to our kids of how, uh, it's possible for both parents to, pursue uh, a professional career and have a, a satisfying family life. You know, we do uh, coordinate on travel. You know, we don't always get it right. And we certainly have missed a game or a concert here and there. But overall, I think with some degree of planning and a little bit of flexibility all around, we've been able to make it work. That's cool. That's uh, I I hope I hope uh, to be able to say something similar, though very different. I we have very different lives, but I hope uh, I hope when it's all said and done, my kids say they were they were good parents and they put us as as first as they could. So yeah. we'll see. Um, I'm sure my kids will end up on a couch over something. I just hope it's not too much that I do. <laughs> <laughs> um, so okay, so so going back to the to the business stuff, you and Mark link up on global tower partners he you're in hong kong he sells to american tower and then you're both drawing on the back of this napkin and say what to each other we can do this in a much grander way and among the entire digital ecosystem or just data centers first or oh, what gosh, were you thinking no. we 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 had much 
more modest ambitions. Fundamentally, we were saying, look, this is a very attractive asset class. And we felt it was a great place to invest our own capital. We wanted also to create a platform to bring together people that we had worked with over the years who maybe didn't want to be at American Tower or, for that matter, Macquarie or even Blackstone. And then finally, to do it in a format that would allow us to form institutional capital alongside us, because clearly the opportunity was much bigger than our personal resources. But we had no idea how quickly it could scale. And it's now grown well beyond our uh, wildest dreams. And we've been able to uh, attract some unbelievable partners as uh, colleagues here and as investors and even customers of our underlying infrastructure. It's just been an incredible ride. So what, what's the initial plan then? I mean, you had to have some idea. You, Mark just has a $5 billion exit, right? It's not like, uh, no, no, I mean, no. you we, got we, something we did. there. Sure. And, and the idea was to, to raise capital deal by deal. Our saying at the time was the world doesn't need another fund. Uh, this was uh, 2013. And, oh. um, you know, at that point, the LP community was increasingly focused on co-investment, you know, or investing directly into deals. And so that was the original idea we had to, to bring attractive opportunities directly to institutional investors. And we were able to do that quite successfully. Uh, we either acquired or started six businesses in that format and uh, raised over $4 billion in equity. So uh, it, it scaled quite quickly. Now, it was very hard because each deal essentially started from scratch. And we had to go to the set of investors that we thought might be most interested in, in that particular opportunity. There were um, geographic distinctions. There were uh, sector distinctions. But we eventually developed sort of a model and a set of documents and structures that we could replicate. But it was very, very hard. And so at that point, we concluded actually there was a reason people raise funds. <laughs> and so we started down that path in, uh, in 2017. Interesting. So, so the, the disadvantage of not having a fund is that you've got to go out and do an SPV, right, for each raise. And then what? You're not taking it seriously as a bidder, right? Or you had the track record. Correct. And so you're trying to juggle holding the deal, kind of keeping the seller interested or, or ideally even committed while you're fundraising. The other thing, which is less spoken about, but um, ultimately became a big issue too, is you know, with the rise of uh, reverse breakup fees in deals, hmm. where the seller is demanding a certain payment if the deal isn't consummated, the investors typically don't want to stand behind that. Yeah. So that fell to us. And increasingly with the size of the deals, the personal guarantees that we were being asked to sign 
became quite uncomfortable. Jeez, that's stressful. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Huh. I, I mean, it's one thing to to say, you know, I'm I'm willing to. Yeah. I don't know. You start you start signing like huge personal guarantees. It's like, I don't, yeah. I don't know that I want to really speak for everyone coming to the table every single deal. Right. Right. And that's that's essentially what we were having to do. Huh. So how many days would you have to like, I, I mean, you know, how, how much how much were you not sleeping very well? <laughs> oh, well, there, there were definitely some sleepless nights, but we would have the deal covered in terms of commitments. Yep. But um, there was always the risk that someone might back out. Yeah. And, you know, none of the investors wanted to take sort of interconditionality. So, in effect, we would need to backstop uh, any hole or absorb whatever the reverse breakup fee would have been. Fortunately, we never found ourselves in that position and we were able to close all six of the deals on the indicated timeline. Yeah. It's just a fund gives you so much more, right? Then you can get like the bridge loan at the fund level and not totally. have to worry no, about all that stuff. And you're, and you're an institutional player yeah. in the best sense of that word. And what we've tried to do over the years is, is use the best of being now a significant institution, but not lose the entrepreneurial drive and the agility of being more of a entrepreneurial firm. Yeah. Huh. So, so when you were, what, what did you start with? I apologize for not knowing this exactly. No, no. I know that this I know data fine. centers and towers are like the core competence. Yeah. We actually started with towers. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and that was the first two deals. We actually started with uh, a portfolio of towers in Mexico hmm. that had previously been part of Global Tower Partners, but didn't go across to American Tower in that deal for regulatory reasons. Hmm. And so we ended up partnering with Macquarie to acquire that portfolio. And it was a $75 million equity raise. And it was a true bootstrap, friends and family uh, effort. And, you know, Mark and I kicked in. We got um, some of my former partners, uh, Mark Gologoli and Larry Guffey from Blackstone to believe in us. Mark's father-in-law, very sort of grassroots fundraising. And, and we cobbled it together, closed the deal. And then about six months later, the non-competes for a number of the team from Global Tower Partners had expired. And so we were able to put them back in business in the US. And we knew that was going to be a much bigger opportunity. And so we expanded into more of an institutional category. We got, um, interestingly, the Jordan Company, more of a private equity firm to invest. We had Stone Peak, Infrastructure Partners, which had spun out of Blackstone. So Trent Vichy and Mike Dorrell, who I knew from, from Blackstone, and then Goldman Sachs Infrastructure, Ed Pallison and Lynn Sievers, who um, really gave us a kind of brand uh, imprimatur that um, was very helpful. And, and so 
The last piece was Calsters, who hmm. made a direct investment. And, you know, we eventually raised over a billion dollars for that platform. And it became and remains the by far the largest private tower company in the United States. So then when when did you start thinking about, okay, data centers is a logical extension and I know, you know, fiber came a little bit later, but yeah. but this concept yeah. of, you know, having the holistic solution. So it, it starts, and I, I give Mark all the credit for this. It, it starts with being customer centric. And by customer, in this case, I mean the underlying customer of our infrastructure. So in the case of towers, that would be Verizon, AT&T, T-Mobile, um, and what we were seeing as technology and network architecture evolved was more and more of their equipment was going not onto the tower itself, but actually into data centers. Hmm. And this was the beginnings of what is now known as a software-defined network. Mm -hmm. And it allows them to more dynamically manage capacity. And so we started thinking you know, in order to be more relevant to those customers, we should really think about getting into data centers. And so then, you know, we kind of started an initiative over probably 12, maybe 18 months. We probably looked at 50 different companies and for one reason or another, discarded them or, or, or they didn't work out. And eventually we were able to acquire DataBank which we still control today and has grown probably 20 fold in the last eight years. It's just been an amazing growth story. And so that got us into data centers. And then through that, we eventually found Vantage, which is our hyperscale data center platform. And, and so it, it really uh, was a story of uh, following our customers or now what we refer to as following the logos and, and being a trusted partner and, and offering them solutions to their network challenges. And it turned out to be an incredibly uh, important sector. It's now um, the largest for us. We're probably still better known as tower owners and operators, but data centers is our largest segment today. What uh, what do you think is kind of like misperceived about, I guess, what's going on in the data center market? I mean, you know, and and I guess I guess uh, one of one of the questions that I have is there's a, uh, well, what do you? We'll start with that. Like, what do you need out of a good data center asset? Yeah, well, you know, th th at various points there have been, I guess, what might be described as short theses on data centers. That's kind and, of where I was going. You know. Yes. It's natural because they, they've had an amazing run. And, you know, certainly th there are people who have, have tried to poke holes in the model. And I think the, the fundamental misperception really comes back to the demand. And yes, the hyperscale customers in particular, Microsoft, Amazon, Google, all have tremendous uh, resources and what are even today very low cost of capital. And so 
the the question might be, well, what can we offer them uh, that they don't already have? And, and the answer is capacity, both physical capacity, but also resources that that they don't have and, and can't easily access, even with all, all of their capital, because there is such a exponential growth in demand that they can't physically keep up with it. And so, yes, they are self-performing, as it's known, uh, providing for their own capacity, but they're leasing more with third parties every year because the amount of their requirements are growing that much. And so that has a follow-on effect of making all of the existing capacity necessary and indeed valuable. You know, there was also some questions around sort of technological obsolescence. And the the reality is that, you know, there may be certain things that evolve and, and are phased out over time, just as in the telco world, optical switching, you know, has replaced the, the physical switch centers, but the locations will still be needed for whatever that next application or standard is. And the big challenge today in data centers is power. And these are enormous consumers of electricity, and and that brings numerous challenges. But fundamentally, in a world that is power constrained, the existing locations with access to power are going to be more valuable over time. And I think that isn't perhaps fully appreciated. People are looking at it as, boy, it's going to be hard to build all of the capacity we need. And certainly that's true. But what it means as a second order effect is the existing capacity, the existing facilities just became more valuable. I thought it was interesting that Mark said that Reno is a growth market because of the land to expand. And then also you've got uh, a ton of solar out there that offers a renewable solution. But then I couldn't help my, myself but think, well, that works, you know, for maybe a hyperscale data center, but not so much at the edge, right? The edge, you kind of need close to the end consumer. So how do you, how do you kind of like densify the edge? Um, so it can handle more capacity, right? Like that's that's yeah. uh, an interesting. It's a really big challenge. And there you're not talking about the generation capacity because for the most part, that is sufficient today. But the grid or the distribution network is often constrained at the edge. And so it's hard to get the density of power that's required. And so, you know, that's going to requ- need innovative solution. There's going to be investment, certainly, by utilities required. But I think we're going to have to be more creative about how we supply that energy, about how we power the data centers, how we cool them is another big element. And there's some really interesting things uh, going on there. Uh, I'm a big believer in human ingenuity. And, and the ability for technology, for markets to find innovative solutions. And so no doubt that will be part of it. But there's also going to need to be a lot of investment in our electricity transmission and, and distribution infrastructure. It, it, this is not stuff that can just flip on overnight, right? <laughs> I mean, it takes a while. 
and a lot of planning. No. Years, uh, decades, even. There's a company out there pursuing an open RAN network that is, uh, you know, it's a very interesting concept. And I'm, I'm curious, like, how you've seen the evolution of that. Uh, I, I happen to be a Boost Infinite subscriber and think it's the yeah. best cell network that I have ever had. However, I know it's like a T-Mobile and AT&T MVNO, and uh, it's kind of like under penetrated right now. So I'm hopeful that uh, that my my service doesn't degrade as time goes on. But, you know, it seems like they're having some financial yeah. issues based yeah. on their last earnings call. So just I know, mm -hmm. I know Mark has talked about very yeah. positively how forward thinking they are with networks. And, and I'm curious kind of what you've seen from working with Dish and yeah. where you see networks going in the future. Like, is OpenRAN a real possible solution? Because it seems exciting. Yeah. So, look, that that is, in fact, the uh, continued evolution of what we saw 10 years ago, which is moving more of the sophisticated electronics into data centers and using software to dynamically manage capacity. And, and this is sort of the perhaps largest manifestation of that that we've seen. And as you point out, the technology works. That, that part is really not a question anymore. They, they've proven that it works. Their challenges are financial. And so th that's the part that, again, as an industry, we need to figure out because for a healthy digital infrastructure ecosystem, all the actors need to be able to earn a reasonable return on capital. And right now, the wireless space is extremely challenging. And part of that has to do with the spectrum uh, cost. Part of it has to do with some of the regulatory frameworks. But the technology certainly exists for DISH to be successful. And I think, you know, over time, that network will be. I, I don't know exactly in what form or under what ownership, but I, I do believe that there will be a fourth wireless network in the United States that is uh, viable. Yeah. I think that that's a good segue into another topic that we had pinned. Building a business in the private markets versus the public markets. You know, I often hear, well, these assets aren't really right for the public markets. And I know that was the argument for, for bringing Zio public or Zio. Um, and then the other one's escaping me. I apologize. But I know you switch. took over Switch. Yeah, that's right. So like what kind of assets are better built in private, in your opinion? Well, I think in the case of, of those two companies, you had slightly different uh, stories. Maybe Switch first. They had enormous demand from their underlying customers to build more capacity, but they had a shareholder base and a set of earnings guidance that really constrained what they could do in terms of investment. And so they were passing up and missing out on a tremendous growth opportunity. And with private capital that can take a multi-year view, 
it's actually much easier to fund that growth and to plan for it. So th- that was, I-, I think, a pretty uh, clear example of, of why, particularly during large CapEx cycles, it can be better to operate privately since you can take that long-term view versus with um, you know quarterly or even annual earnings targets that are constraining you. Zayo, uh, a little bit different. That business had been built over a number of years through acquisition, and it had not always been fully integrated. And so that was much more of a cost takeout and a productivity story with respect to the sales force and, and really utilizing what is a tremendous network asset, but it's going to require some fairly significant changes to the operating model and taking some short-term hits to profitability in order to create a more efficient business long-term. And that's hard to do also in the public market where you're, again, being measured quarter to quarter. And so in the case of both those companies and, and both those management teams, without a doubt, they would tell you what they're doing in a private context is much easier and ultimately will create much more value than continuing to manage the company quarter to quarter in the public markets. That makes uh, a good amount of sense to me. I'm going to push back a little bit on this one, though, because... Now Digital Bridge is disclosing your fund level performance, right? And does it put the burden on Digital Bridge a little bit? Because presumably uh, those companies are a little bit in the J curve. Maybe they're on the back end of it. But does it put it on you a little bit more than it otherwise would have been? Or are you guys just fine wearing it? Look, I think part of the uh, benefit of private markets is they are in fact private. And the communication is only between the firm and its private fund investors. And and that's um, certainly a simplified version compared to what's required of a publicly listed alternative asset management firm. But it doesn't change in any way how we make manage or exit investments. We're doing that in exactly the same way as fiduciaries for our private fund investors to maximize their risk-adjusted returns. And so the level of reporting at digital bridge level is not particularly burdensome or certainly competitively sensitive in a way that would change how we operate any of our companies or how we pursue our overall strategy. It's simply requiring of more internal resources to produce the financial statements, but it doesn't change how we manage the companies. No one investment is material at the corporate level, so we don't uh, disclose individual company performance. And the impact of any one investment on any particular fund is not that significant either. So we have all of the latitude necessary 
to operate the companies in the right way, while also, of course, maintaining our public reporting obligations. Yeah, I just kind of wondered if, you know, it, one, it, it's nice. You're a growth equity guy, I could tell, right? Which is nice. Um, and and I'm sure that your LPs are as well. So I think that you probably have the capacity to suffer a little bit more than than maybe some other, you know, if you if if Switch or yeah. Zayo was still publicly traded and then the stock goes down or something like that. But I just kind of wondered if, you know, if people s- cite your short term, uh, you know, multiple over invest capital or whatever, you know. Yeah, look, they they will certainly and, and rightfully so look at our private fund performance as a indicator of our public company performance, because fundamentally that's the business we're in. We're in the business of raising and investing capital on behalf of private investors. And so how we perform in that regard is highly relevant to someone evaluating an investment in the public company, but it doesn't change how we go about it. In fact, it really only reinforces that because the only way the public company is successful is if we perform in our function as fiduciaries to the private funds. Do the private funds that you talk to, I know that I, I'm certain they all want a, a reasonable return. So that's not the question, but do they value maximizing return or do they value a consistent type of return that that they can trust you to deliver on and deploy a lot of capital because you're yeah. responsible for deploying yeah. a lot of capital and they always say size is the yeah. enemy of returns. Well, and, and and that's a fair comment I think in the abstract, you know, as a large pension fund or sovereign wealth fund, it, it is part of your responsibility to make investments that are meaningful for the overall uh, return of that total pool of capital. And so you do need to make uh, meaningful commitments to firms like ours. And I think we've been able to generate consistent returns. And what I think maybe gets lost a little bit in, in some of the public industry reporting the prequins of the world or, or what have you, is what matters most to many limited partners is the multiple of money that you can generate over time, as opposed to just the IRR. Because if we have a high IRR for a year or two and return capital that they need to then reinvest in order to maintain the same allocation or to achieve the overall fund IRR that they're targeting, that actually creates challenges for them. And so I think the the sweet spot would be the attractive risk-adjusted return over a meaningful period of time, which leads to a high multiple of invested capital. Yeah. I mean, that that's how I have seemed to think about it. And from the conversations that I have with my buddies in private equity, that's what's come back to me. But um, figured I'd ask something I do have to ask. Uh, you know, we talked about taking switch private and taking Zayo private. 
what is the fundamental economic argument for why selling down uh, Vantage and uh, is it DataBank? Am I messing? DataBank. Yeah. What yeah. what what fundamentally is the economic rationale for deconsolidation yeah. there? Well, I, I would start uh, maybe turning the question around a little bit, which is I think those investments are functionally equivalent to other investments that we have made through the funds or in a format like I described for Mexico Tower Partners or Vertical Bridge, where we have invested our capital as principals, whether it was Mark and I individually or Digital Bridge, the, the corporate entity, we've invested our capital as principals, but we are actually uh, serving as fiduciaries in a larger capacity. So in the case of, of those two investments that you referenced, we own around 10% of those. Mark and I personally own around 10% of Mexico Tower Partners, for instance, but obviously we don't consolidate that. So I think it was a little bit of an anomaly in an accounting sense to begin with. And so it's a little bit of the uh, form now following the function, um, but there's a, a more simplistic and somewhat idiosyncratic reason for doing it, which is when someone types up DBRG on Bloomberg, it would appear that we have significantly more debt than we actually do. Because in addition to consolidating the earnings from those two companies, we also, of course, consolidate the debt. And that has distorted the picture of our overall balance sheet. And in a world which is appropriately concerned about leverage, that leads some uh, erroneously to conclude that we are somehow over leveraged. And so we think it's actually a much more representative presentation to deconsolidate those two assets, to consider them the same way we do all of our other investments and present Digital Bridge as it is a alternative asset manager rather than the owner of an operating asset, which we aren't really in an economic sense, the owner of, but are consolidating it for accounting purposes. We think it's a much more accurate presentation and will give the uh, best picture of what Digital Bridge as a corporation is today and going forward. Okay, so the argument that I'm hearing you say is, is the deconsolidation actually gives people a truer picture of the the entity that the stock represents or, you know, that they have a, a share in, as opposed to, um, you know, the more skeptical side of me would say, well, you deconsolidate it so that the stock goes higher because it's easier to sort of I, I, I was I was concerned well, when I saw what was going on that we're giving up true owners yeah. economics in order yeah. to get like a stock pop. That that's no, the concern. No. no, in fact, we're, we're going to continue to have the uh, Digital Bridge Corporation will continue to have a meaningful investment in both of those companies. So it is in no way signaling anything about our view of their 
future prospects or value. It, it's all about cleaning up our public company reporting. Yeah. Well, I, I, I actually, when Mark was like, we're super excited to own 9.9% of this, I got myself to thinking, well, how, like, how do you sell an asset at fair value when people know you want to sell it for deconsolidation? But the answer, I'll let you answer it rather than answering myself. But uh, well, look, um, the, the old adage of there are two sides to every trade. But I think in this case, these companies are both growing and raising capital for per- growth and, and investment that don't necessarily require us to be selling directly. We may sell a portion of our shares to um, sort of accommodate the accounting, but we're going to remain significant shareholders and certainly very active in, in those companies' future direction. I, I think the stock will find its own level based on the earnings profile that we can demonstrate. And these two companies have a lot of interest from investors. They have significant co-investment already alongside us. They're both excellent ways to participate in the overall growth of data centers that we've been discussing. And I think they have significant interest. So, you know, it's it's a matter of creating the appropriate competitive process and getting to what we think is, is the right outcome. But we're going to continue to be uh, significant owners and investors in these two businesses. Yeah. The sheer amount of capital that appears to need to go into this space is pretty incredible just generally. And I, yeah. How do you, how do you think about, you know, deploying? So I I see, I see, you know, like what your target is 8 billion to raise in 2023, right? Yes. That's a lot of responsibility that lands on your desk. I mean, how, how do you, um, you know, how do you think through risk risk management at the sure. different fund level and and putting out as much as Mark can raise? And and is yeah. that, you know, I don't mean to misframe it. Maybe that's not the way you think no, about no, it, but no. I'm just kind of curious. It's, it's not, but I understand what you mean. And again, we're incredibly fortunate to be in a sector with such strong demand pull. And we're really seeing that across our portfolio, not just data centers. The Organic growth and the demand for our infrastructure is tremendous. And that translates to interest and demand from investors who want to participate in that. So we've been fortunate to be able to form meaningful amounts of capital. We have a variety of formats for that. Of course, the private funds are one way. There's also the uh, so-called co-investment into uh, deals alongside of the fund. And then several of the companies, just as we were describing, are raising capital at the company level in order to fund their growth. So that $8 billion is comprised of, of multiple components. And if you look at the overall growth in our sector, you, you would see that that's just a tiny fraction of the total addressable market. So I think that level of fundraising and deployment is sustainable for us. 
obviously we do think about the portfolio construction and risk management aspects. So sector concentration, geographic concentration, even stage of company concentration. We're looking for a balance uh, across all of those dimensions. And we're constantly looking for new areas to invest as well. Uh, Earlier, I mentioned satellite ground-based infrastructure. People don't realize, I didn't um, until we looked into it, that these satellite constellations actually require a lot of infrastructure on the ground. Hmm. And so that's an area that, so uh, landing stations. So the signal coming down from the satellite has to then be transmitted to the the people uh, or installations on the ground. So you need, you know, you've seen the large dishes. Uh, yeah. That has to sit, that has to sit somewhere. And we think there are a lot of parallels to uh, wireless infrastructure. Oh, well, yeah. In then you need regard. fiber, right? To, to, huh. Interesting. Exactly. Hmm. Exactly right. So all of that is to say that, that we feel very comfortable, you know, with the pacing of our fundraising and deployment simply because the sector is growing uh, at such a rate. Interesting. Do you, have you seen like the, the wireless, the capacity for wireless to deliver a good product seems to grow um, quite a bit, you know, year over year. I mean, is, is wireless, do you think wireless is going to be a good enough product someday where we just walk around with a wireless plan and that's all we have? Or like, are we, Going to need the cables to the to the home. What do you what do you kind of think? Yeah. Of that? Well, it's a very it's a very interesting question, and and you're absolutely right. The bandwidth of wireless has increased significantly, and obviously five G now offering even more. I would tell you honestly, though, we're still in the early innings of that. Even here in the United States, five G coverage is not ubiquitous. Yeah. And most phones are still not 5G capable. So that transition cycle will take a number of years and require significant further investment. But outside of the United States, you know, there are still countries operating on 3G, many on 4G. But critical to all of this is the fiber connectivity to the various wireless sites. So It used to be towers would have a big microwave dish on them to relay the information from that site back to the core network. Now that's done in the United States, at least virtually all by fiber, because in order to have even 4G bandwidth, you need that. Because if you're relying on microwave backhaul, the the throughput is not sufficient for true 4G functionality. 5G, obviously, you need fiber and and high-capacity fiber at that. So I think it will continue to be a combination of technologies. The the wireless capacity will uh, continue to increase. More spectrum will be needed, but so will continued technological evolution. But we believe fiber is absolutely critical. It's the connective tissue, if you will. And when you add data centers into the mix with software-defined networks and the like, connecting the data centers to each other, to wireless towers, to 
the network cores, that has to be fiber fed. And so that will continue to be a critical element. And, you know, with the recent infrastructure bill, I think we're getting closer and closer to more ubiquitous fiber in this country. It won't extend everywhere, but within a few years, I think you'll be well over 90% of the country with direct access to fiber. Hmm. The um, the software-defined network, does that enable you to, to, to condense the packets of information and then send them more efficiently and then like my phone or whatever? Yes. It, expands it is that is that what it's allowing i know it allows the network to be yes, more dynamic it's, it's, it is and it's it's effectively the routing yeah that, that is the efficiency multiplier the the sort of packetizing as it's known that's sort of a separate exercise okay and then unpacking it on on the other end that that has more to do with the the phone okay um, all right than the sort of network but Nonetheless, in order to move the amount of data that is now uh, traversing our networks, it has to be extremely efficient and dynamic in the way those packets are routed. And, and that's really the genius of it's C- CRAN, uh, Cloud Radio Access Network or Software Defined Networks. Yeah. All right. That makes Yeah, it would make perfect sense that my phone's got to be able to receive the packet and then my phone has to be able to expand the packet yeah. for me, not the network. It's it's interesting. I've I've spent a lot of time on on trying to understand networks. And I, I think I'm maybe 30 percent of the way there, <laughs> but it's a well, fun thing to learn about. If, if I may, uh, there's a terrific book. It's now over 10 years old, but it's still highly relevant called Tubes. Yeah, yeah. Have you, have you come across that? I have. Um, so I, I want to make that required reading for all of our new employees. Yeah. Um, I, I think it does a great job of sort of creating uh, a picture, a diagram, uh, some of which is virtual, by the way, but nonetheless of really understanding how this ecosystem fits together. It's uh... It's it's going to be a fun place to watch. It's got to be it's got to be really cool to sit in your seat. There's a lot of evolution and a lot of capital that's going to be needed to push it forward. What are the biggest constraints outside of power? Yeah, well that's that that's the biggest one by far uh from a operational standpoint. I think then I would go next to people. And, you know, that is the the critical element in what we do, both at our level as investors, but then at the company level, you know, we need more and more uh, engineers and managers who understand the customer requirements, who can anticipate them, who are willing to literally get their hands dirty building infrastructure. And, you know, the supply constraints still exist, it's eased somewhat, but getting fiber was a legitimate challenge during COVID. Um, we have other pieces of equipment that are still hard to get. Uh, HVAC equipment for data centers. Some of the power equipment is very long dated even today. And then in certain markets, labor is still a constraint. So, you know, having managers who 
can navigate in that uh, challenging environment is critical. So I, I think, you know, again, fundamentally, it's a, it's a human capital business. So that's probably the next constraint. And then I think maybe in more investment terms, I think the, the exit of investments is critical. You know, we are not yet, at least, in a permanent capital format. And we have a duty to return capital to investors. We want to do it at the opportune time when we've been able to generate that attractive compounded return. But we need to be able to achieve that. And as the size of the companies grow, the challenge of getting full realizations only increases. And so I think that is something that we started to think more and more about. We're still quite early in our fun lives. So um, we have time to, to try to optimize that, but it's definitely something that I spend time thinking about. Yeah. So uh, the numbers are so big, it's almost like the only natural buyer becomes the public markets, right? Or un unless I guess you could get a permanent vehicle, but then I don't know what you do with carry in that situation. Yeah, that, that's been the, the challenge with the permanent vehicles has been the carry, although there are some mechanisms that have been implemented. The bigger issue I see is the liquidity hmm. and, and how do you manage that? And, you know, the, the sort of private REITs that have existed, you know, have various mechanisms to, to manage it. But fundamentally, there's a disconnect between offering liquidity and an illiquid underlying asset. Yeah. And you, you can't have enough of a buffer or backstop because if people want, really want liquidity, there, there's not going to be enough capacity there. So you, you have to have some ways of managing that and all fully disclosed and appropriately implemented, but still kind of at odds with what the underlying investor may want. Hmm. Well, they can always manage that through their allocation, Ben. That's not your job. Right. That's right. That's right. And and again, you know, everyone should go into it eyes open. But I think if there were one innovation around that that could unlock meaningful potential capital formation, I think that would be it. Hmm. It's a shame the public markets can't do that somehow. I mean, I guess maybe they can, but it's a shame that's not the natural answer. Yeah, and I think it will be eventually that that these things will be somehow listed and you need probably a slightly different uh, reporting regime and, and structure to achieve it. Otherwise, you're just back to public companies or... BDCs or whatever, um, you know, that they might be. So that's the, I think, the next innovation that the industry needs. Hmm. Well, you are a group of very smart people, especially when it comes to finance. So I think you probably figure out some answer. Of course, the regulators need to go along with it and all yeah, that. Yeah, th they do. And, and the, the best news for us is there are a lot of even smarter people who are thinking about nothing but this. And we can be fast followers yeah. when they figure it out. Yeah. Well, it'd be interesting to watch, man. It's a, it's a long way away, and these are long-lived assets. So we'll see how the answers come. 
Exactly. And so it makes sense to, to match the, the asset duration with the investment vehicle. But what we found is even the most sophisticated, forward-thinking investors are still constrained by industry convention. And, you know, there's a known commodity in the 10-year private fund vehicle. Five years to invest, five years to realize, and sort of wrap it up with a nice bow. That also, by the way, aligns all of the uh, incentives and cash flows more directly. And in our experience, Mm -hmm. that's just been where investors are most comfortable. We have a lot of conversations about long-lived, long-duration vehicles. But as soon as you get into the questions about carry or liquidity, they sort of uh, come back to what they know and are comfortable with. And, you know, it makes sense. That's a, that's a human instinct. So, you know, we'll hopefully be able to find ways of doing it over time. But um, for now, we're sticking with the more traditional structures. Yeah, I mean, I guess the thing that's nice about a ten-year life is you can always you can always subscribe to the next fund, right? So yeah. that's uh, potentially the argument for it. Then again, you know, having having a permanent vehicle that taxes are avoided as long as possible and all that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, no, it it, it is not the most efficient form to own these assets, but it may be the most expedient yeah. that uh, we can come up with. That's the best we got, right? Yeah. <laughs> For <laughs> One now. of those things, yeah. For now. Huh. But just like, you know, I believe in human ingenuity in, in technology, I, I believe in it in finance as well. And so inevitably, uh, things will evolve. Yeah. Huh. Well, there you have it. Well, I, you know, I have, uh, I've enjoyed talking to you. I'm, I'm so grateful that you said yes to coming on. Thank you. And I don't know if you, you know, if you want to wrap up in a bow, some life advice for young, young people that want to be successful in a career. I don't know if you have any yeah. ending nuggets, but, um, I just want to say thanks. Well, thank you, Bill. It's been a pleasure and I wouldn't presume to tell anyone how to manage their, career and certainly their life. But I think what has served me well is, number one, having great mentors. And so seeking that out wherever you can is always beneficial. And the other thing, in addition to uh, work ethic and analytical technical skills, is just an intellectual curiosity of being genuinely interested in understanding things at a fundamental level. Why does this um, help a customer or why would someone want to pursue a, a certain path? That I think grounds things in a way that that's very practical and allows you to think ahead, um, sort of completing a task, a, a piece of analysis, and then asking, well, what does this mean? Or what is the next question that it prompts? I I think that is just a great way to go through a career or even uh, life as intellectually curious.
Well, I got a follow up for you. You said seek out mentors. One way to seek out, I think, a good mentor is to be a deserving mentee. How do you how mm. do you how do you make sure that you're a deserving mentee? Wow. Well, I, I think everyone is deserving mentee. I think that is just a fundamental concept. But I think making it easy to be a mentee means being engaged, being self-motivated, self-directed, but also being willing to ask for advice. And, you know, there's an expression about you can uh, form a relationship by um, doing something for someone, but you actually form a closer relationship by asking them for a favor. Hmm. And it may be uncomfortable and it needs to be organic, not forced, but, um, you know, asking uh, for advice, asking for help, asking for um, lunch with your boss or, or a senior person, that level of proactivity and engagement will get people's attention and, and make them want to spend time and really invest in you, invest in that relationship. Awesome. That is a great place to end. And uh, again, I appreciate you stopping by and thank you for your time. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you.